Please be seated. And you can turn in your Bibles or your bulletins to Haggai chapter 2. We're in a, a series this epiphany in Lent called Let Your Hands Be Strong. And this is a call to spiritual renewal from the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So uh, this is the last one in Haggai. Next week we'll be in Zechariah. Um, and I've been so encouraged as I've been um, just prayerfully diving in to these prophets, seeing uh, what the Lord might say to his people in our day. Um, my wife Laura and I are beginning to talk a little bit about the possibility of renovating our, one of our bathrooms. And um, as we've talked with others about their experience with, with renovating part of their house, here's what we're learning. The beginning is really fun because you, you have this vision of what it could be and you're excited about a, a total upgrade. Um, and the end is, is even better because there's this glorious reveal the space is fresh and stylish and more functional than ever before. But the middle, the middle is the most terrible part and the most crucial part of the renovation process. One friend who renovated their kitchen told me this, Aaron, we had to scrounge together meals with no stove, no oven, no kitchen sink, and no dishwasher. We set up a makeshift kitchen in the hallway with a plug-in griddle, and a dorm-sized refrigerator. We were living in a construction zone with noisy tools and sawdust. It sounds terrible. But their kitchen's amazing now. The middle of the project is often the most difficult and the most crucial. You're in a degree program. It was exciting at first. Fresh, learning new things, making new friends. Worlds of understanding opening up before you. You're getting closer and closer to your calling. The end promises a new degree and a bright future. But what about the middle? The middle is rough. The middle is a slog. It's unending assignments and flagging energy, and it just seems like it will never end. What about you've started an art project with a burst of creative inspiration? And you'll be so proud to release it to an appreciative audience. But in the middle, you're putting your blood, sweat, and tears into your project and into your piece. And all you can see are its imperfections. You're mentoring someone. It could be your own child or an employee or a younger Christian. You're investing your heart and soul into this person. And the relationship seemed kind of smooth in the beginning. But now you wish they would be more responsive to you and make fewer mistakes. Make fewer mistakes. You're investing in them. It's like three steps forward, two steps back. And you wonder if it's going to be worth all of the headaches in the end, all the prayers in the end. It is easier to start than it is to finish, whether it's getting sober, learning uh, how to make a free throw, cleaning your room, or growing a business. And the same is true for the most consequential things that we put our hands to, fulfilling our life purpose, becoming a truly loving person, or lifting high the Son of God in the city of Chicago, that all would be drawn to him. It's easier to start than it is to finish. And because the middle is so difficult, what happens in the middle? We lose heart, we grumble, we complain, and sometimes we forfeit everything we've worked for up to that point. Author Scott Belsky says this, Sadly, most people are not patient enough to reap the fruits of their own labor. 
Great teams gain their strength and resilience while toiling their way through the valleys, not just from relishing the view from the peaks. The peak at the middle, the peak at the end, or peak at the beginning, peak at the end. It's the valley in the middle where the game is played. The valley is where we find the remnant of Israel. The valley is where we find their leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, So you can look uh, at Haggai 2 verse 1, which says this. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now what's significant about this particular date? Seventh month, 27th day. That is exactly one month from when the construction project of the temple rebuild started. They're one month in, okay? Um, so they've been working hard, but for what? There's, there's sawdust everywhere. It's a big old mess. And now they're tired after their initial burst of energy. What's more, they're celebrating an important Jewish feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise called the Feast of Booths, which required them to stop their work entirely and live under uh, tents, live in temporary dwellings outside and wait on God and worship him for a whole week. And what they're doing is they're celebrating that God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. For their ancestors, waiting on God in the wilderness was what we might call peak middle, peak middle. The beginning was really dramatic. They were rescued from Egypt. The end was satisfying, a promised land with a temple and a king. But the middle was a wilderness of wandering for 40 years. All this to say that the message from God through Haggai in chapter two is perfectly tailored to people who are in the messy middle. Because God is going to speak encouragement and perspective to people who are doubting whether or not it's all going to be worth it. Look with me in verse two as God speaks through Haggai. The Lord of hosts says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, verse three, who is left among you who saw this house, meaning the temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The Lord is saying in essence, you know, you're discouraged, aren't you? You look at the temple now, you compare it, some of you saw Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, and you, you compare the two in your hearts, and you feel so demoralized when you make that comparison. You just want to weep. Some of them did weep, because it, it says nothing in your eyes. You know, one Bible scholar calls this the disquiet of unfulfilled expectations and ideals the disquiet of unfulfilled expectations and ideals. Have you ever had one of those in your life? We've all, I mean, we've been there. At the beginning of the relationship or the calling or the growth process, we had super high hopes and high standards. We could see it in our mind's eye and feel it in our hearts. This is gonna be amazing and fulfilling and it's gonna go quickly and it won't be too bad. And we'll always be happy. One month in, one year in, 15 years in, it looks a little different. We feel different. 
Our energy is low. Our despair is high. See, the remnant of Israel, they wanted fast and big. But the process that the Lord had them in was slow and small. And as a result, they're in danger of quitting. Not just the job, but quitting the call, quitting the obedience, quitting the trust. Before the fruit is harvested, before the temple is unveiled. And so what happens is the Lord intervenes with some massive encouragement. And the first encouragement he gives them is that God promises them that he is with them in the middle. God promises them that he is with them in the middle. Let's look at verses four and five together of Haggai 2. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people in the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Work, for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. To paraphrase, hey, Zerubbabel, I'm with you in your leadership. Keep it up. Don't quit. Hey, Joshua, I'm with you in your high priestly ministry. Maybe he was saying, you know, I know that it's a mess to make sacrifices when the temple's not even done. You have to work with temporary conditions. And, and the festival materials aren't what they used to be. And Torah literacy is low. You're the man for the job, Joshua. Be strong because my spirit is working with you every moment. Hey, remnant of the people, I made a sacred covenant with you after Egypt to be your God. It was your ancestors that I made the covenant with, but you are a part of their legacy and you are a part of that covenant. I promised that you would be my people and I would be your God. I walked shoulder to shoulder with your ancestors through the wilderness and I'm working shoulder to shoulder with you as you rebuild the temple. I'm with you in the sweat. I'm with you in the sawdust. And I'm with you in the setbacks. So work, because I'm with you. One of my first jobs was at a department store, and I worked the closing shift. One of the things that you had to do if you worked the closing shift is that you had to clean up after the customers left. Everyone wanted to go home. It's 10 o'clock at night, and, and yet there's still work to be done because the shelves need to be cleaned up for the morning so that when people open up the store, it looks nice. So you need to make your department look nice. And so I was tasked, as other employees were, with cleaning up the shelves, putting the stock back, making it look good. And uh, we would, when we were done, call a manager over, and the operating store manager would come over, check our work, and say, okay, you're good, you can leave, you can go home. But if we weren't done, if they said, ah, it's not quite good enough, um, we had to go back and keep working. And it was, it was just long and slow and hard. But one department manager, uh, one store manager stood out to all of us employees. His name was Woody. And he would actually come. He wouldn't just check our work. He would actually uh, come and find the employees with the most difficult cleanup assignments and get right next to them and clean up the shelves with them until the department was clean and closed. And he would let them go. Then he'd move on to the next one. He would do that until the store was clean. He stood, stood out to us because he wasn't just telling us to work. He was working with us, working shoulder to shoulder. It encouraged us and it helped us get the job done. 
Now, the Lord has a track record of working shoulder to shoulder with his people, with his leaders, and with everyone who works for his glory. He wants to help you fulfill your call, and he's going to work with you. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. His presence lightens our load, boosts our spirit, and strengthens our hands. Uh, Bible scholar Joyce Baldwin says this, the personal presence of the Lord gives courage, determination, and conviction that he will not permit his cause to fail. Now, if this is true, and if it's true for everyone in the middle, um, when he comes to us, when we are discouraged, and he's with us, he doesn't come empty-handed. The Lord brings vital provisions. And this is the second encouragement that he gave to Israel, which is that he promises personal resources. Let's look at verse six of chapter two. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse eight, the silver, it's mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen, the Lord of hosts is powerful, he's wealthy, and he is just. And one of the things that the Lord is promising to do is to shake the nations, to shake the heavens and the earth until the gold and the silver lands in Jerusalem. Have you ever lost something valuable in a couch? I recently lost my wallet. It was recovered by a family member. All kinds of value gets swallowed up by couches every year. Wallets, keys, money, video game consoles. Imagine how much value we could recover if all the couches of the world could be lifted up, shaken hard, and we could recover all of the treasures back. Now in verse seven, the Lord promises to do something similar with the nation's of the world. He says, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And here's what happened. The empires of Assyria and Babylonia and Tyre and Persia had stolen Israel's resources over the years. They had left them beat up and poor. They robbed Israel of their money through taxes and theft. They robbed them of their crops and their storehouses. And they destroyed Israel's crown jewel her, her temple, Solomon's temple. The Lord God says, I'm going to pick up the nations. I'm going to shake them. I'm going to turn them upside down until every last coin of silver and gold has been uh, put back into the house of the Lord. Um, one of the ways that God made good on this promise was that after the temple rebuilding process started and after God made this prophecy in Haggai 2, word got out. Uh, the Middle East was a buzz when Israel was rebuilding their temple. And two Persian government officials heard about it and they decided they would interfere. Their names were Tatanai and Shether Bazanai. And they came to Israel and they said, uh, Ezra 5 and 6 tells the story. They said, hey, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple? Did Persia say this was okay? We need permits. Can you give us your permits for rebuilding? They asked that. They said, um, who are the names of the people working on this project, we would like all of the names, please. And they wrote down all of the, who are your leaders' names? We're gonna take this back. 
to King Darius and check out what you're doing. And so they did exactly that. They went back to King Darius and said, uh, do you know what the Israelites are doing? They're rebuilding the temple. We have the names of all of the leaders. We have, uh, we have their lack of permits and um, basically asking for permission to shut down the project. King Darius, what he did is he looked into the records of King Cyrus, his predecessor. He called up the archives, he looked it up, and sure enough, he found that King Cyrus had said, let the work of rebuilding the temple commence. Let the Israelites do it. And not only that, we are going to foot the bill from our royal treasury. Persian silver and gold that had been taken from the temple was now going to be sent back. And they would have never otherwise known that if these two government officials had not meddled. And so uh, not only did they get silver and gold from Persia, they got wheat, they got livestock, they got oil, anything they needed to rebuild the temple, anything they needed to stock the temple, anything they needed for the sacrifices in the temple were given by Persia. Isn't that amazing? So yeah, God shakes the nations. He owns everything. He can get justice for Israel. He can get the resources they need to finish the job. And we do need resources of time, money, energy, relationships, connections, open doors. What is it that you need right now? The calling that God has given you to complete the job. Don't be afraid to ask the Lord for it. Don't be afraid to ask him to encourage you and to resource you and to help you. We experienced this as a church last fall as we were praying for a new worship space to open up for us. Um, our lease was going to end at the end of the year. We fasted, we prayed, we asked God for resources. And what did he give us? He gave us a six-month extension right here at 640 West Irving Park. And, and it's been such a blessing for us to be here in a longer way. It's given us more time to look for a better space. He will continue to provide for us. He always does. In the wilderness, he gave manna from heaven and water from a rock. And in Jesus, he gave his own precious son. Romans says, what more can he give? What more would he? Why would he withhold anything else if he gave his own son? If he gave his own spirit, why would he withhold anything else? In Haggai 2, God is speaking a very strong word of encouragement to people in the middle. First, he assures them that he's with them. And then second, he promises to provide all that they need using the people the very people who stole from them. The final encouragement, though, might be the most important, and that is that God promises them future glory. He promises them future glory. Let's look at verse 9 of Haggai 2. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. My friend who renovated their kitchen said this, when I felt overwhelmed with the chaos and the mess, I would pull out the plans, lay them out, and look at what the finished product would be like. That vision and just knowing that the stressful chaos would not last forever gave, uh, uh, got me through the hard times. So right as the Feast of Booths was coming to a close and they were preparing to resume their work, the Lord laid out the plans for the temple and the people rebuilding it. And he says that the latter glory of the house will be even greater than the former glory. And also in this particular place, after all of the war, after all of the destruction, this is the place I'm going to give peace. You are working, O Israel, for a temple that shall be greater 
than you can imagine. We all need to know, along with the Israelites, that the Lord has a shall be for us, that we will not always wander in the wilderness. There shall be glory to God in the highest, and there shall be peace to his people on earth, and there shall be a satisfying reward for all of those who endure suffering for his sake. There shall be fruit for the seeds that we are uh, sowing. There shall be a reason for you and I to rejoice and say, I'm so glad that I didn't quit when it got hard. We need to know that there is a shall be for our life, a shall be for our calling, a shall be for our families and our church and our city and our world. This reminds me of one of the most soul-stirring promises from Romans 8, 18. When St. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, don't you see that we're tempted to say, you know, the setbacks and the suffering of this middle season are holding me back from the glory, holding me back from the goodness. But here's the Lord saying, the setbacks are actually preparing you for the glory. The setbacks are part of the glory. See, the temple to come was Jesus Christ. He was torn down and rebuilt. That was part of the plans for that temple, was that he would be torn down and rebuilt with greater glory. His latter glory, my friends, includes his scars. He kept his scars. We suffer with him now in order that we may also be glorified with him. And every step that we take, every muddling, muddy step that we take through the wilderness, through the valley, is for his greater glory and his greater honor. Because what is he doing? By grace, he's collecting every scar, every speck of sawdust, every setback, and he's making it part of his glorious temple. What an honor. What a privilege. He says, thank you. He says, keep going. He says, thank you for your faith, hope, and love when there's setbacks, suffering, and scars. You know, one man who surely needed this encouragement, I think, from the Lord was, was Zerubbabel, the governor. I don't envy that guy at all. First, you know, Zerubbabel, it was like he was living down some serious generational curses from his parents and from just from the line of leadership that, that had preceded him. Now, when leaders fall short, they, they make it harder for future leaders. And that's what would hap that had happened for him for like generation upon generation. His, his fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers who were kings, they, their lines of leadership were embarrassingly bad. They had rejected God. They were a disgrace to the whole nation. They had rejected God. And, and at the end, God had to say, you know, to Jehoiakim, like, I'm going to reject you. I'm, I'm laying you aside. You're, you're not worthy of, of my um, presence any, anymore. That's what caused the exile in the end, according to the Lord. It's like, I let you into exile because, like, failure of leaders in part. And what's more, now Zerubbabel is leading a nation of a pretty small and unmotivated nation that's disrespected by its neighbors. Um, one scholar describes Zerubbabel's situation. In the world's eyes, Zerubbabel's life had no significance. He was a minor government official in a backwater province, the inheritor of a cast-off royal line. 
That is a tough job. And he's one month in, not a whole lot of thanks going his way, sawdust everywhere, no perks of leadership, but a lot of responsibilities of leadership. So when the encouraging words came down from heaven, I think Zerubbabel was soaking up every word that the Lord was speaking. In fact, the Lord did have a very personal word for Zerubbabel that comes at the very tail end of the prophet Haggai. You can look in um, chapter two, verse 23. Chapter two, verse 23, the the final words that the Lord speaks through Haggai is, is this. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, a signet ring uh, was worn on the person of the king. It was like a seal, and the king would wear it around his neck or on his hand, and the king could use that seal like a signature, put on a royal decree, you press it into some wax and send it off, and it's the king's word. And that's how the king gets things done. But it was also a very precious and protected item, piece of jewelry, because it had so much power and because it, it was invested with the king's personal authority. And so for, for uh, you know, generations, the Lord described the Davidic line of kings as his signet ring. Each king was like his signet ring. I'm carrying you on my person and I'm using you to accomplish my will. But do you know what God said to Jehoiakim and the prophet Jeremiah? You're like a signet ring that I take off and cast aside. Isn't that tragic? And that, and that was broken. That, that like connection that God had with that line was broken. The covenant was broken. And so here's the Lord of hosts speaking to Zerubbabel and he's saying, um, I choose you, I chose you for this job, Zerubbabel. And I know it's not, uh, it's not easy, is it? Maybe it's not as easy as you thought it was, but I chose you for this job. You're my servant. He calls him my servant. You're not Persia's servant. You're not Babylonia's servant. You're not anybody's servant but mine, Zerubbabel. And, and guess what? There's a day coming when the temple's gonna be remade and the nations are gonna be shaken. You know what's gonna happen? The signet ring is going back on the divine hand. And guess what? You're going to be honored in the process. Zerubbabel is in the middle. Yet God calls him to lift up his head, lift up his heart, and fulfill his assignment, fulfill his call. And that is exactly what Zerubbabel did. And generations following this man would honor him, would recognize that he was a faithful king. He had a hard job and he had a really difficult legacy to live down, but he was faithful to his God and he is honored in the line of Jesus Christ for whom he prepared the way. You know, progress in the middle is so slow and messy and small, isn't it? We get so frustrated, we lose heart in the middle. Yet here is Jesus Christ, our savior, who began a good work in us and will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus Christ who says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here is Jesus Christ who says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God and I will write on them the name of my God and my own name. Here is Jesus Christ 
who is making all things new. So, my friends, lift up your hearts, lift up your heads, and let us be strong to finish the assignment and fulfill our call until he completes it on the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.